Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell. I'm committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening. If you're a current nonprofit leader, or maybe you hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are literally on the cutting edge of our sector. And I think once you hear today's episode, you'll agree. This is one you'll want to share, and I hope you'll do me that favor. Share it with somebody else who's on the path to nonprofit leadership so that we can build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Now, this episode's guest is Rhett Mabry, and I had a fantastic conversation with the president of the Duke Endowment. It's hard not to be impressed with an organization that's given away $4 billion since its inception. But that's exactly what the Duke Endowment has done as it invests in higher education, health care, rural churches, and child care organizations. But you know, what's equally impressive as is the Duke Endowment's investment is its leadership. And Rhett represents a team that is very thoughtful about their role in understanding the evolving landscape of philanthropy. You know, as one of the largest private foundations in the United States, they could frankly sit back and just let their significant resources move on autopilot. But it's clear that that's not what Rhett and the endowment are going to do. And he shares lots of great resources that drive his thinking and will help you as a nonprofit leader. Um, What does a funder like the Duke Endowment look for in an organization like yours? Well, he has answers to that exact question. What do they see in terms of great nonprofit leaders? What do they expect from your board of directors? How did they want you to balance the management of data and results as compared with being creative and innovative as you look forward? Those are exactly the things we talked about, and I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 93. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Rhett and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work he is doing through the Duke Endowment. Speaking of leadership resources, make sure you connect with us when you're on our website. Give us your email, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any of the free weekly resources we're providing, including bonus episodes just like this one. Let us help you and your nonprofit build a strategic plan, maybe re-engage your board, or perhaps help you personally think about the next step on your journey to nonprofit leadership through our coaching, training, or one of our unique mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rhett Mabry. Rhett, thank you for joining me on the path. Well, thank you, Pat. And I'm uh, looking forward to this and always enjoy my conversations with you. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, I'm delighted and grateful if you're willing to share with our listeners kind of the insights you have as a leader in the philanthropic space, literally uh, across the country. And also your own, some of your own personal journey as a leader in the nonprofit space. So thank you for that. And, and why don't we start with this question? Uh, obviously, our listeners have a chance to look at the Duke Endowment and understand the great things it has done in our communities. But maybe talk about the, the opportunity and the challenge that you face leading such an organization. Well, thanks again, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. And thanks again for the opportunity. Um, 
Great question to start off with, because I do think the Duke Endowment, with all the resources we have, uh, creates both an opportunity and a challenge, and really, I think, a responsibility uh, to use the resources that have been entrusted to us for this period of time to have impact. And when I say impact, it's a word I use a lot. I really mean measurable change in the target population, the changes that you're trying to see. Um, several years ago, I had an opportunity to participate in a, a training at Harvard Business School in a program, week-long program that was called Strategic Perspectives and Nonprofit Management. Right. And it was an interesting uh, experience. The first night, I'll never forget, they, they, there were 140 of us all nonprofit leaders from around the world. Actually, I was the only foundation person there. And they moved us into this big lecture hall and we had sent our mission and vision statements ahead of time to them. And so they took a sample of those and projected them up on the screen. And we dissected those mission and vision statements with some leadership from the Harvard faculty. And th that evening and really repeated the rest of that week, was basically a point that we nonprofits are pretty good at talking about what we do, where we do it, why we do it, what we do. We're not as good at talking about the change that we want to see. Right. And I, that's had a profound effect on me and how I think about our work at the Duke Endowment. Um, I think we need to strive to have impact. And I don't say that as a throwaway word. Impact is difficult. It's not easy to achieve. But I don't think that if you really, I think if you don't do that, then you can you can get uh, caught up in all the positive feedback you get from grantees because you're giving away money. And I think you can uh, kind of take too much solace in doing good. And I think we have a responsibility to do more than just good. We need to drive change, particularly a foundation in our position. Yeah, I love that philosophy, and, and but I am struck by the challenge you face because you obviously have to honor Mr. Duke's charter, and yet you're in a very kind of volatile, changing environment right now. So have how have you and perhaps the Duke Endowment been able to adapt given some of the restrictions, I guess, that you face? Well, you've, uh, you've touched on something that's uh, even, it's probably even heightened during this time period uh, with COVID and and the social unrest across this country. But it's a challenge that we deal with since I've been with the endowment and I'm into my 30th year now. Um, Mr. Duke left a very prescriptive trust indenture that he even requires our board to read aloud once a year, which we do faithfully. Wow. And it's a not so subtle reminder of this is how he wanted to give away his money. The challenge for us, frankly, is how do we adhere to his guidance, which we are going to do. We're, we're faithful adherence to his guidance and yet make enough adaptations to remain relevant almost a hundred years later. Uh, some people who uh, applaud us would say, uh, well, there's a foundation who's committed to donor intent. At the same time, some people criticize us and say, how in the world could they be listening to instructions that were put forth in 1924 and still try to apply them in today's world. So we're, we're always trying to strike that balance between faithful adherence and adapting enough so that we can remain relevant. And it, it, it's a persistent challenge for us. Uh, well, well put. 
but I'm glad that you are at least evaluating both sides of that coin. And uh, I'm sure it's not easy. What issues concern you? You lift up, of course, the pandemic and, and social issues that face our country and frankly, the world. Are there particular hot button topics that you are looking at right now from the Duke Endowment perspective? Well, let me take COVID first and then let me talk about what we're doing uh, in response to the social unrest. And, and COVID, uh, I'm thrilled that our board pretty quickly, last March actually, uh, called a special board meeting and approved an extra 1% payout. Now that doesn't mean anything to most people, but essentially for us, it means another $35 million that we were giving away on top of 175 or so million that we were uh, scheduled to give away last year. And that extra $35 million specifically goes toward COVID response to try to help people in the Carolinas uh, respond to and adapt to COVID. Uh, a lot of that money has been given also to organizations that we traditionally don't work with or haven't worked with. And these are uh, organizations that are more proximal to these communities of color right. and led by usually led by leaders of color. Uh, I think we've become, uh, you could argue belatedly and too late, but we've, we've begun to recognize that these organizations that are proximal to communities that have been marginalized throughout history, uh, they enjoy something that the well-resourced white organization that tracks data, those are the types of organizations we've been attracted to over the year, yep. enjoy something that these other larger organizations may not. And that is trust. And I think we all know that without trust, there's really no change. Think about um, if you were going to a therapist and you're a client, there's a lot of research. In fact, we've asked Duke University to document this for us. There's a lot of research that says you're going to be, you're much more likely to improve if you have a therapist who looks like you, who has empathy for you, and maybe who has some shared life experiences. We've also seen similar data in the classroom where the teacher looks like the students that he or she is teaching. Uh, so we think there's something to this proximity. And I think what we're trying to, what we've, I think, recognized is we've got to be a lot more within the framework that Mr. Duke provided us. And that's right. a caveat. We've got to figure out ways to be more intentional about reaching these communities, give them a longer runway of funding, uh, a lot of these organizations have not enjoyed the largesse of a white dominant society. Right. And so we've got to give them a longer runway. Don't come in with our typical one year, two year, three year grants, but maybe a decade long investment in them so that they can grow into their potential, build their capacity, not as we see that they should build their capacity, but in conversation with them. In fact, we've uh, put together with, with the help of MDC out of Chapel Hill, uh, a collaborative of 15 foundations across the Carolinas. And we're in the middle of kind of establishing our guidelines, but ultimately we hope that we will uh, pool our resources uh, to invest in leaders of color and to do just that, to invest in them over a long runway and also bring them to the table with the foundations right. so that we can build, you know, social capital, is such a huge driver in our society at the individual level, at the, at the organizational level, et cetera. And once we select these leaders of color that we hope to fund for a sustained period of time with our pooled resources, I think we also, um, we want them to be around the table with us so that we can learn from them and build relationship with them 
and then help to open other doors so that they can be advocates for their work more broadly. Yeah, so it, it, there's a lot going on. Uh, we'll see how that all works out, but I'm excited about the uh, the start that we're taking in that regard. It's impressive. And because admittedly, you could, in essence, hide behind the rules of, well, you don't have 10 years of documented performance. And so I'm, I'm, I'm impressed and encouraged. And I guess it leads to a related question. Rhett, this sounds like something you're going to consider going forward. In other words, it's not just an emergency relief philosophy. Is that fair to say? It's a fair distinction. Thank you. So the 35 million is essentially emergency relief. Right. The, the pooled resources that we hope to accomplish with these other 15 foundations across the two states, by the, by the way, of the 15, I think seven, I believe, are led by persons of color. Right. Uh, and then the eight. So it's a, a pretty uh, a, a good balance or a racial balance among that group. Um, that's a longer term play. And what I believe will happen is that we will learn from that process and then it will infiltrate some of our work. Now, some of this is going to happen naturally too, Patton. So if you think about healthcare, which we fund, there's a big push in healthcare to move toward addressing social determinants of health. These are things like housing. Uh, these are things like food access. These are things like transportation, employment. Those things conspire to affect someone's health. And they're, again, belatedly, I believe, but there's a recognition today that um, that if you really want a healthier society, we've got to address really the impact of poverty uh, and its impact on health, as opposed to the way the healthcare models basically designed today. Let's wait till someone gets ill, then let's treat them medically All right. when they show up at the emergency room. And hospitals and healthcare providers are beginning to realize that there's a real push toward um, addressing these social determinants of health. I think that is an equity play and it's a proactive. I think of a lot of, when I think about equity in a lot of ways, I think about being more proactive. Excellent. And um, in fact, Mandy Cohen here in North Carolina has a, um, a waiver that's been suspended during the pandemic, but it'll be starting up here soon where she's basically using Medicaid dollars. I think the number $650 million over five years of Medicaid funding to use more flexibly, flexibly to allow healthcare providers to address social determinants of health. So that, you know, some in some ways, yes, we're changing. In some ways, the world's changing and we're changing with the world. I think it's a combination. Let me hasten to add, though, I don't want to present us as a, um, a paradigm of what you need to do. We, <laughs> right. we, we are... Uh, we are intentionally humble because we have a lot to learn. Um, our ultimate goal is to have impact in the communities that we try to reach. And we know that for us to have that across the Carolinas, we have to be more intentional about reaching these communities that, frankly, we probably haven't been proactive enough in trying to reach in the past. Well, again, I applaud that effort. Yep. Well, let me ask you this, Rhett, because, again, I, your team has been – uh, wonderfully uh, supportive of organizations. And you've literally been to every corner of North and South Carolina. And I think it's been a hallmark of the endowment to get in front of prospective organizations that you fund. So obviously you haven't been able to do that. I wonder, have there been any learnings from having to now evaluate potential uh, organizations virtually and, and might some of that mechanical operation continue? So I think we've... So the benefit of the Duke Endowment is we have staff who've been here a long time, including me. 
And over time, they build relationships with the organizations that we fund across the Carolinas. So once those relationships are established, I do think going forward, even when the world returns to whatever the new normal is, I do think we will do more Zoom meetings instead of reflexively jumping in our car right. and driving. We have a ethos from the day that I arrived, and it certainly preceded me, of going to the grantee, not inviting them to our beautiful office in Charlotte. Right. And, uh, because we feel like we've always felt like this hugely inefficient, especially back in the day before we had cell phones, because um, you were literally you had downtime in the car. <laughs> right. Um, and you would usually travel in pairs. So then that was fun, except that, you know, it's hugely inefficient. It's, it's gotten more efficient with technology. Um, but I, and I think we will still do a lot of that. But I think it'll be more of a mix. I think once you have an established relationship, instead of driving to Elizabeth City for a two-hour conversation, it's probably more efficient to Zoom, particularly if you don't have other visits in that area. Right. On the other hand, I don't think we'll ever give up on um, going out to see the communities because we felt like just being out there, we learn more than sitting in our offices. Makes total we'll, sense. I think so. I think that'll be a mix going forward, and I think we'll see more people. Working from home, I think, you know, we have the good fortune of we spend a lot of our time in conversations and in meetings. And right. that can happen in the way that you and I are having this conversation or it can happen one on one. I would never I, we value one on one and in person, uh, but we can do both. And we've proven that by working essentially remotely for the past year. Yeah, and, and I've done it well. And by the way, thanks for the shout out to my hometown of Elizabeth City. Uh, uh, right, they are important. celebrating that uh, mention, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. But all right, you and your team have have worked collaboratively with many, many organizations. Obviously, leadership is something you look for when you're evaluating, I assume, someone to fund and continue funding. Are there certain characteristics you found? You know, what are the best nonprofit leaders doing that maybe gets the attention of the Duke Endowment? You know, I, as you give me a heads up that you might ask this question, and and, and thank you for that because I always believe that uh, having to prepare for things like this help you to reflect, and so I appreciate the opportunity. Um, when I think of leaders, I think of folks who are committed to it, adapting and committed to change, and I yep. think of you. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Craig Bass. He's a long-term CEO of the Alexander Youth Network. Um, they've always been a leader among their peers in helping children who have been removed from their homes and, um, and are in, in need um, mental health treatment and other services. But what I've always respected about Craig is that he has never um, rested on his laws. Again, he could, he's got a pretty smooth running operation. Right. He's always been willing to take the risk and you know, the old axiom by Wayne Gretzky, kind of skate not to where the puck is, but to where it might be heading. Right. Um, and I think good leaders do that. Uh, you know, I, I say this a lot when I speak in public. If you think about, I mean, if we were having this conversation in 2001, we wouldn't be doing it on Zoom probably. Yeah, but we probably would have a BlackBerry in our pocket. And, you know, that day BlackBerry was ubiquitous. Right. Um, but they didn't keep innovating. They didn't keep getting better. They didn't become more efficient. And now I bet most people, a lot of people don't even know what a BlackBerry is unless they're older like you and I. <laughs> right. 
So, and I guess the point there is that, that continuous commitment to change. Um, you know, my dad used to always say the only constant in life is that it's constantly changing. And, and I think you either got to embrace that or you get run over by it. And so I think the Duke Endowment, again, as we strike that balance, we've got to adapt and, and make changes. But I think good leaders are willing to change. Not not always making the right change, by the way, but, uh, you know, I think of Coke and New Coke. Sometimes you have to retreat and say, okay, that didn't work. Didn't work. Yep. How do we continuously improve? I think that requires some sort of measurement, some sort of documentation of what you did and some sort of thoughtful after action review and evaluation. Red, you you mentioned, of course, the organization's ability and leader's ability to change. Sadly, a lot of the nonprofit sector deals with change in terms of turnover and how do you all evaluate? And again, I know I'm asking you for a blanket answer, but is it a concern? And and how do you know how do you evaluate an organization that frankly is dealing with turnover? It's a, a good question, and it's a difficult one to answer. I think it is. Um, I think it happens, unfortunately, way too often. Part of it is because, and part of this, we may be, we may contribute to. Right. Because a lot of these organizations are starved uh, for assets and resources. And uh, so they may not be able to pay their staff um, what they deserve. And this, this, you know, a lot of these jobs that we support in the child welfare space, um, in the healthcare space, uh, in higher education, even to some degree, th- these are challenging jobs. And it, because usually they're dealing with people and, uh, you know, dealing with people introduces an emotional drain or toll that, you know, it's it's different from doing some sort of technical job where you're right. spreadsheet or something. And so I've been reading a lot. By, uh, Phil Buchanan is a uh, CEO of a group out of Boston called the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Yep. And he talks, he's, he's a, what I think of him, he's a critic of philanthropy, but he's, a critic, he also is supportive of it. So he's not a let's burn down the house type. Right, of right. More of how do we get better? And I think he, the more I read him, and this actually relates to some of our emerging work and trying to reach leaders of color, I think he argues for, uh, and I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he argues for more uh, discretionary funding, operating support. I'm not sure if I totally agree with him there, but he also argues with, about how do we supplement our program grants with some sort of uh, overhead coverage, 15, 20% premium, particularly for organizations um, like our child care providers or uh, even like the churches that we fund that are not revenue driven, they don't have earned revenue. They're not billing Medicaid uh, in a lot of cases. The ones that are, you know, the schools of higher education that we support, the hospitals support, there's a revenue stream for them, either through tuition or either through, you know, insurance and public support on the on the healthcare side. But the ones that essentially live off philanthropy, I think we've got that we and other funders need to think about how we we don't perpetuate that starvation cycle. Yes. Which yes. may lead to some of the turnover. Thank you for lifting that. Because let's face it, Rhett, listeners are thinking if they're eligible, how can we get the Duke Endowment to fund us? Or if I'm in any community around the world, I'm looking at a funder like the Duke Endowment, wondering if I'm going to have to impress them with some new and creative program because I don't think they're going to fund the current operating. So I guess, one, I see that you're considering more multi-year grants to offer 
a runway, but I think that's what you're speaking to, right? That you, you don't want me to only look for creative, shiny programs if I'm not doing the one I do now very well. Right. I think that's, I think you summarize that well. And I don't think, I'm not saying it's going to be a sea change from one to the other. I think it's going to be more of a continuum. Okay. And I think it'll be applied in specific case by case situations. But I do believe there's more openness uh, to thinking about that. Um, you know, it's, I've, I've always kind of thought if, I, if you were aligned, 100 if the goals of the nonprofit and the Duke Endowment were 100% aligned. Yep. That's a huge if because that rarely happens. But if they were uh, and that organization was constantly churning out quality impact data so that we could assess their effectiveness. I, I would argue the best kind of support there is operating support. Yes. Indeed. I just don't think that naturally happens in every case. But I do think we need to be open to that possibility, probably more so than we have in the past. Well, and you've always been good about evidence-based um, programming and and building in systems. I guess for a nonprofit leader, I'm guessing you would advise me to make sure, to the extent I'm able, to create methods to collect evidence, right? Uh, I mean, but, but could you speak to that? Because um, I think a lot of organizations, you know, they're just focused on what we got to do today and what we're going to do next week. And would you advise them to maybe slow down and make sure you're keeping track of what you're doing? So, yes. Yeah. So let me first say evidence is on a continuum. And uh, I, I put evidence-based, which we think of as those that have randomized control trial data is kind of the, in terms of the strongest research, we think right. that's strongest. But again, we need to be able to fund across the continuum. I do think this is increasingly a data-driven society. We're hearing more about artificial intelligence, predictive analytics. Data is is so is ubiquitous in our society. And yet I do think we struggle with how to analyze it in ways that we can be more effective. So I would encourage organizations to start building the evidence. There's a group out of Boston that we're working with called um, Project Evidence. And in fact, they're writing a book uh, that's going to be, and I think I'm supposed to write a chapter in it. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. They're writing a book um, called um, Build Me the Evidence or something to that effect. And I do think what we're learning at the Duke Endowment and even with national funders with which we partner is that this search for a randomized controlled trial, black and white answer. Um, and if that's all you're looking for, then you're going to be sorely disappointed most of the time. Right. And that what we've got to do, and we're actually doing this in a pretty good case uh, with our summer learning program within our Methodist churches, they've got a, a summer uh, program for children who are behind in school or in, in early grades. Um, I do think we're learning, we've got to be more intentional about building the intervention. So who do we serve and who do we serve best? Uh, what is the curriculum? Let's think through that. How do we replicate it you know, faithfully from one site to the next? There are a lot of kind of core building blocks things that I think you can do and should do long before you try to do some sort of summative evaluation. And frankly, most of my mistakes in philanthropy have been when I encourage our board to move towards some sort of summative evaluation well before the model 
um, was ever perfected and the intervention right. was ever perfected. So I do think you have to have a mindset of measurement and continuous improvement. Um, you know, one of my best examples of one of my many mistakes, uh, we worked with the state of North Carolina around a program called Family Finding. And it basically the essence of it was um, the Red Cross during hurricanes like Hurricane Katrina would use this internet techniques to identify family members. So you could take the displaced families and move them to Minneapolis with a distant relative. Right, right. The Red Cross was facilitating connections with family members. And so th there was a great idea. I thought that how do you take that concept and use it in the child welfare space where you're trying to move kids in foster care to some sort of permanence? And what better permanence if you can't move them back to the biological parents? Than to move them with a relative who has some sort of kinship with them and some sort of love, frankly, yeah. with them. And in the typical cases, and what happens is that uh, a, a DSS social worker probably identifies one or two families and s tries to see if their relatives see if they're willing to take custody of the child. What this family finding thing did, though, it was great. I thought pretty too early, I thought it was great. But <laughs> right. what they did was they identified on average about 66 family members. They curated those family members and got down to about nine who were willing to actually take custody of the child versus the randomized consignment, the comparison group, the, the, the business as usual, finding one or two families. So we had a fourfold increase in family members, right? right. So you're thinking that's going to lead, or I'm thinking, we're going to move more kids to permanence, to a relative placement. What happened, though, and this is what we didn't iron out before we started the study, is the DSS social workers already have cases over and above what they should have. They're already swamped. And so when they see a list of nine family members who would be willing to take the child in the treatment group using family finding, they're only really able to work with one or two of them. They can't work with all nine. They don't have the time or the luxury. So it's a great example of a good idea where we did not think through the, its application into the system as well as we should have. In fact, we're writing up a case study on um, yet one of our. <laughs> good for you. I mean, be willing to share. But I would also compliment you that if you don't try some of these things, you'll never find out. And sometimes it's not going to work. And so good that you're willing to do that and share it and, and I'm also struck, Rhett, by while you're encouraging the infrastructure to the extent a nonprofit has the ability to, to collect data, um, you're also sensitive to not penalizing new and particularly organizations serving communities of color that because they don't have a 20-year evidence-based, right? That So it sounds like you're, you're using kind of the, the subjective area there to help those kind of organizations. That's our intention, and that's where we need to improve. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, and it may be patent that we've always required uh, audited financial statements. We've got to get comfortable with uh, different ways to assess the quality of the organization. In the end, I think you and I both know that when we make grants, we're essentially investing in leaders. Good um, point. And, um, you know, leaders come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. And we've got to, um, we've got to identify those leaders and we've got to give them the runway so that they can do what they do well, and that's grow into their potential and begin to advocate for their work, you know, give them help if that's what they want, also help them build their capacity so they can use some data to complement their good work. 
but I but again, I'm persuaded by the trust that I think these organizations might enjoy that that may not be enjoyed by you know the organizations that we traditionally have supported. Yeah, and and you're willing to give me you're willing to take some chances, I guess, with creative solutions going forward, even if I don't have a lot of history. Right. It seems to me you're at least considering that kind of approach and to the extent right. you can evaluate. Right. And even though we're going to pull resources, I, I hope this fund will be a 10 year fund. And I think it'll be pretty significant if, if um, that's awesome. all organizations contribute. Uh, our money's still going to be finite. So I don't want to I, I don't want to say to every organization out there, we're going to we're going <laughs> right. to have to use some assessment. And, uh, Indeed. Uh, we can do that. We can do all it. Right. Well, I'm a nonprofit leader, Rhett. Uh, what do you want to see from my board? I, I know you're evaluating my leadership, as you should. I, I wonder, as you and your team evaluate organizations, are there specific things you're looking for from board members? It's a good question. Um, I think about it in two ways. One, the easy technical answer is, the first thing we always ask is, does your board, uh, does 100% of your board contribute? And good. The follow-up to that is, you know, if, if your board doesn't believe in it, then why should we? I mean, Indeed. I not say it that way, but that's essentially, um, I think that's essentially the thought. On a more nuanced level, Phil Buchanan, again, who already referenced uh, Center for Effective Philanthropy, also, he's written a few books about giving well done, I think was the most recent one I read a couple of years ago. Um, and he makes the case that this notion of applying business principles to nonprofits uh, may be a misapplication. That right. that that's kind of the notion. Oh, we need to, if we only operate more like nonprofits. And he makes a strong case for why nonprofits are different, more mission driven, and frankly, more. Um, you know, I'm talking a lot about data, but it, nonprofits have a lot of more nebulous or even less difficult, less easy to measure aspects to them in terms of the work and the impact they're trying to have on people's lives. Right. So he, he I think, makes a strong case. And if you're a board member, it's first important to understand that there are differences. Don't just show up with, well, here's how we run our business. Uh, those business principles don't always apply. Um and I think, um, you know, obviously more and more diversity and uh, perspective around the boardroom is important, uh, both at the Duke Endowment and across other nonprofits. But actually, the more you educate your boards to appreciate the challenges you're facing yep. as you do your work, I think the more helpful they can be. And I do think they need to be fundraisers as well. And I think that's pretty much understood these days. Well, I'm glad you lift that up um, because not all board members, uh, I think, embrace that. And we understand they're not all comfortable asking for money, but they do need to, I think, embrace the philanthropy that's inherent in their organization's success. So I'm glad that you're you know, willing to reinforce that. And I, I wonder, Rhett, you talk to phil philanthropic leaders across the country. Um, you've mentioned several trends that you see maybe coming out of this pandemic and elsewhere. Um, are there other trends that you and your colleagues are talking about. One in particular I want to ask you about is nonprofits' willingness to collaborate, if not merge together. Any thoughts on that? Another good question. Uh, let me take, I do think collaboration is a, a huge trend. Uh, and I'm going to take it from first from the funders 
and what I'm seeing there, but also from the nonprofits. And Excellent. It has, the funders, in fact, I think in 2008, there was a big fund in Charlotte to try to uh, actually encourage, incentivize nonprofits to merge. And I think it struggled some because there's, so here's what, here's what happens in the corporate world. And maybe I, maybe I'm being too cynical. <laughs> right. Essentially people get paid off when mergers happen. Right. Um, you know, re, there's money involved and, you know, that helps to smooth the way and, and unruffle the feathers and essentially their acquisitions in some way, in, in my opinion. Now, I, I, I could be corrected there and I'm open to be being wrong on that. In the nonprofit world, trying to get two organizations to meld together um, can be challenging. So on the funder side, we're much more collaborative than we ever have been. The last 15 years, we've been remarkably collaborative. We're part of a national funding collaborative called Blue Meridian Partners that includes right. other foundations, but, right. but as importantly, high net worth individuals. And what I've learned from them is a couple of things. One is if you're doing transactional collaboration, I guess there's some benefit to that, but it's pretty limited. The real collaboration that I think leads to the greatest impact and opportunity for uh, stronger investments is planning together uh, to find out how you think about certain challenges, where you have commonality and where you have differences. Because as funders, you know, the old saying is once you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. <laughs> right. We all have something equivalent. Well, not all of us, but many of us have equivalent to Mr. Duke's trust indenture. We are going to do essentially what Mr. Duke outlined and we're going to stay in his lanes. Right. And that means we're not going to fund the environment. And there may be funders who, in the environment saying, well, why don't you fund the environment? So we all have our idiosyncrasies, if you will. Right. But if we get around the table as humans, you know, we can find areas of um, agreement. And then if we focus on those as opposed to our differences, I think there's just a, a better chance for collaboration. So we, we're in Blue Meridian Partners. We had a huge collabor collaboration to help expand uh, nurse family partnership for the last 15 years uh, and with foundations across North Carolina and South Carolina. Right. And that was also a planning kind of shared planning. And now we're in this potential collaborative as well around, around trying to support leaders of color. So I would say if collaborations just tr uh, transactional, I think it's got limits. I think it's about uh, meeting together, spending time together and finding some realization that together we can be stronger than we are separately. So I think those same principles would apply to nonprofits. Um, I do think, and I know people in philanthropy say this a lot, so I'll worry about, you know, kind of getting an eye roll here, but I do <laughs> right. think there are probably too many nonprofits out there. They're, they're started and initiated with great passion and with great intent. But I do think there's probably an opportunity for more consolidation and merger uh, in a thoughtful way to try to um, increase your impact. I think some of the same principles that funders working together. What I do like is that we funders, in fact, in 2002, we brought in uh, John Solomon. He used to work with formerly, now Atrium, but formerly Carolina's Medical Center. And he was in charge of networking all the hospitals. And we brought John in to speak to all our children's homes directors about merging nice and acquisition 
Well, it's nice, but it had to go over. (laughs) It was us preaching to them. Here's what you need to do. Whereas we were the worst collaborators in the world. Right. Right. So I'm I'm a little bit prouder of of philanthropy in that. I think we're seeing the the merits of, of, um, of collaboration and, you know, Gandhi's quote, you must be the change you want to see. Right. Uh, If, if we're going around espousing, you know, the mer- the merits of collaboration, then we too should probably be willing to do it. And I'm glad to say that we have and hopefully we'll continue to. Uh, well put. And I would agree with you that the discussion of collaboration does not mean forced merger. I just think it's healthy for nonprofits to not, again, I know they have their head down sometimes in the silo, if you will, but at least have conversations because you're right. We may find ways that we can work together to help our community. And yeah. so you're leading by example there. The, uh, I, I want to add collaboration. So another change in the world is there's much more of a systems approach. Um, and you, you, you read a lot now about collective impact efforts within communities. I know David Brooks writes a lot about our future for America probably is not in D.C., but probably within our communities where we have where we know each other and have mutual shared uh, um, interest in, in, right, in right. care for each other. Uh, I do think systems change is a lot about collaboration as well, public and private, also private to help kind of identify how you collectively sum up to some sort of benefit to the community. Um, It's it's difficult. We're doing some of this work in Guilford County right now. What we hope will be more than a decade investment in trying to get better outcomes for children prenatally to third grade. Uh, and one of the challenges is how do we how do we meld together a suite of nonprofits and in some cases a suite of evidence-based practices and get them to give up certain aspects of their work such that the um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, there's some sort of synergy there. And I, th- I put that under the rubric of collaboration as yes. well because because I think these kind of standalone. Uh, interventions that we are known for funding, even if they're evidence-based, they've got, they live within a, uh, an ecology or they live within a, a community in a system and they've got to adapt and change to fit that system and vice versa. So I think collaboration in under that systems change, I think is a, uh, an important conversation we need to continue to have. Having said all that, it's easier said than done. <laughs> well, I was so, going to ask you because the nonprofit leader, I think, could say, well, Rhett, yeah, yeah, we're happy to collaborate, but kind of as long as we do it our way, right? right and the guys right. across the street need to join us. So will you incentivize organizations? How do you get them to give up part of their process? I don't think we've figured that out exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I think so back again, back in the early 2000s, we were we were saying if you're going to collaborate, we'll give you money to go through that process. Right. And then we we got burned a couple of times because they went right up to the altar. And then, and then I think we said, well, OK, we got to have both boards have to commit to it. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, I don't think we figured that out. And honestly, if, if, if they're going after the transaction to get a little bit of money from us, and I think they've missed the point, frankly. Yeah, good point. I think it's a larger, you know, how does this work for us, notwithstanding the sugar high that the Duke Endowment might give to, to sweeten it a little bit. Right. Well, Rhett, let me shift gears with you. Um, the endowment's coming up on 100 years and has every right to celebrate, you know, Mr. Duke's legacy 
Um, but I know you and your organization are not one to kind of seek a lot of attention and praise, but I wonder how might you approach this century of good work and, and maybe ways to lift up the good work that you're supporting? We have been, it won't surprise you, we've been meeting to talk about this really since August of 2019. And, um, and I'm, it's beginning to crystallize. There are a lot of ideas on the table and we're not there yet. We still right. have a couple of years figured out, but uh, I think one thing that's crystallizing that I'm excited about is it appears that we are going to celebrate our centennial by increasing our giving uh, as as a an investment in the future. Right. Uh, I think Mr. Duke 100 years ago made a, a 40 million dollar investment in the Carolinas in 1924, and then a year later, as a trust and venture, put another 67 million into that. So we started with roughly 100 million dollars. Now we're over four billion, and we've given away over four billion. Wow. Yep. But the fitting way to celebrate that is to find some opportunities where we can have some transformative uh, impact. And again, that's easy to say and hard <laughs> right. to accomplish. All these things are easy to talk about, but that's what we're in the process of doing is trying to identify where we might invest additional resources to honor Mr. Duke's giving. Nice. That's what he was about. So what, what is the timeline? I know you're still deliberating. What What is the you know, timeline probably, for this effort? We may not announce it to 19, to 2024, but right, right. as an organization, we probably need to develop uh, some clarity about what it is we might do, certainly by the end of this year Yeah, uh, and maybe early next year. Uh, I don't think we can go beyond that. And then we've got to figure out, you know, all these things, particularly something on a large scale, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of coordination, a lot of conversation. So, and part of it needs to be, frankly, we may get some nascent ideas, and then we've got to kind of bet it with our communities and with organizations that we trust and support, and we appreciate their feedback. And so it's a process. So we've begun it, and we probably need to get clarity in the next nine to 12 months in the latest. Yeah. Well, exciting. Uh, obviously, you've done so much already, but that will be exciting to see what you can do to build on the platform you've created through many organizations. Um, well, Red, as, as we wind up a few more questions for you personally, um, as a leader, um, how do you manage the volume of stuff <laughs> that you have to absorb? I know you're a reader. You've given great evidence, so I, I want to reinforce that. This podcast lifts up, as you know, uh, the importance, I think, of reading. But my goodness, how do you stay abreast of everything that's kind of coming across your desk? Well, we've got a uh, we've got a principle of the Duke Endowment called evaluative thinking, and the first tenet is it's got four principles, and one of them is uh, you should always test your assumptions. I'm not <laughs> I used to test your assumption that I'm keeping up with. Uh, I'm doing the best I can. I have a, a wonderful uh, assistant. Uh, who helps me and um, Stella Jalan, uh, a word for her. But um, I do, you know, I, I, I use Microsoft Outlook fairly effectively. I flag things that I need to follow up on in terms of emails. I, I rely on my calendar heavily. I try to be prepared. Um, 
my dad, I've quoted my dad, this is my second quote. He's, he used a, um, I guess, a truncated version of uh, Louis Pasteur's quote that chance favors the prepared mind. My dad shortened it to chance favors the prepared, meaning <laughs> good. good fortune favors those who right. are prepared. And um, I try to be that, but it's a lot. And so, right. you know, sometimes I have to send emails and say, I'm so sorry for, and I am sorry because I, I pride myself on being prompt. But even in some of my communication with you, Pat, and I, I've, it's been a couple of days before I've gotten back, and I hate when I do that. And I do my best. I don't. Have, I wish I had some system, some foolproof system. And if you have one, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> no, I was hoping you might reveal the secret because uh, I think it's something we all chase. But I, I do appreciate the way you evaluate that and you know, it's only going to get even more voluminous, isn't it, in terms of the data we have to process and you're doing as well as anybody for sure. I hope so. Well, it, last question, you know, and, and often conversations like this start with, all right, why did you get into this kind of work? And, and so I was going to ask now, as we near the finish line, why did you get into this kind of work? My, my father and my grandfathers were uh, all kind of in the caring industry in medicine or, um, one of my grandfathers was a principal at a, at a school. K yep. So I've always had that, uh, you know, I always thought I'd be a school teacher, frankly. Uh, and I still have aspirations. <laughs> Not too late to consider teaching, right? Uh, yeah, I, I might actually. But um, so I've always wanted to be in the giving side. And uh, But I will say I've, I've never been one of those who has a five-year plan and executes it to perfection. I've always had the mindset that um, you need to like what you're doing or you need to do something else because yep. life's too short. And I've had the good fortune of with the Duke Endowment of working for an incredible organization uh, and a, a caring group of people and thoughtful people and um, really an incredibly nurturing environment, incredibly. Um, so much so that I've been spoiled. But, but you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't even know what philanthropy was. If I'm being <laughs> honest. And uh, even when I was approached by the Duke Endowment to have a conversation with them, that was before we had the internet. I bet I was ill prepared for the interview. <laughs> um, so I, I've been lucky, and I believe with good fortune comes responsibility. And um, my goal is to not retire, not about how much money we gave away, but to retire having known that I did my best to try to make us into, put, drive us to be an organization that uses Mr. Duke's generous resources in this incredibly nurturing environment to make a difference in the Carolinas. And I know that's a bold goal and I know it's gonna be, there will not be a, uh, a definite answer to that at the end. Right. That's what I strive to be and I, and I hope to be a better person today than I was yesterday. I will say this job, I've been in this my position now for about five years. It is, again, belatedly, it's helped me appreciate just how important people are. All right. Um, you can have all the best plans and ideas and data, but if you're not nurturing your people, and I still need to get better at that, frankly, um, then you got you're going to have a tough road to hoe. So, um, so I, I'm. I've, how did I get here? Um, 
I've always been a lifelong learner. That's been the gift I think I have. I'm, I am a reader. I love to learn. I love to get better. And uh, as long as my heart's beating, I hope I'll keep reading. <laughs> it's fantastic advice, Brett, as you have given throughout this conversation. You and I both run into folks that I think are pondering jumping into the nonprofit space. I wonder if you have any final words of wisdom for that that uh, you know, man or woman who comes to you and says, hey, I'm tired of my for-profit job. I want to get into nonprofit work. Any thoughts on that? Um, I would just say, and this is a little bit trite, but follow your passion, but I wouldn't go into it thinking this is going, I'm going to have a slowdown in my career. Good point. Uh, I, I do think there's some of that mentality. And then maybe my fanciful notion that I'll teach one day, I have that fanciful, you know, maybe <laughs> I need to heat my own advice. All right. But, um, you know, I think, again, I think there's an obligation with the gift and do something you love. And and I would encourage that, but be prepared to work because we need it and our society needs it. That's fantastic. And well, and you alluded to this earlier, but you need to be a, a, a adaptable to change too, right? You've said in several instances, I, I guess, is that among the themes or are there any other themes you would in summary share with our listeners? Uh, Vance Fry, who uh, he was ending his career with Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in Winston-Salem about the time I started in 1992. I was two weeks on the job and he always said, Rhett, I had went to dinner with him in Raleigh. <laughs> he said, Rhett, he raised up a glass of wine and said, welcome to philanthropy. We always get good meals and you never get the whole truth. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think I've got to always keep that in mind. I, you know, there's a movie, I'm going to date myself here. There's a movie from the 1970s that, um, that ended on, I just always remember the line. It, 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 um, is, it ended talking about a Roman conqueror returning to a tumultuous parade and, and going through this procession and being lauded and the people hailing this conqueror. And beside him was an aide who I think may have been carrying his sword or something and whispered into his ear that all glory is fleeting. And I've always, you know, right. all, you know, don't, you can never stop. And I used to have this notion when I was younger, like, well, if I get to this point, I can relax. And I've come to realization, one, I don't think you can relax. And two, I don't want to relax. Good. Because there's a lot of work to be done. Well put. Thank you once again. I am going to ask for a parting gift. I know this is an unfair question, given how many books you've enjoyed, but is there one more you might share with our listeners as a recommendation? Well, I, I, re I was a history major. Uh, it might surprise you to hear. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> And I, I basically read biographies. Um, Good. And uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I read, finished last year, uh, Grant's of the book on Grant, but I think it's Ron Chernow or Jim. Yeah. That's yep. his name. And, you know, what I took away from that was that he was relentless in his pursuit in conducting war. I mean, most generals, I think if they had a victory in battle, they would retreat to the nearest town and take a few weeks off type thing. And he would, once he had the enemy on the run, he would pursue. So he was tireless and relentless in that. And I think Grant is misunderstood, right? I'm sure the biography illuminates things that most people might have uh, not really considered. So yeah, and, he had again, his demons and he struggled, but you right. know, and that's by the way, that's common to almost every biography. All experience failure, uh, but all have a sense. Uh, you know, I read a lot on Churchill, 
uh, I read a book on Alexander Hamilton. They all have the sense of destiny and almost a commitment to having a meaningful, meaningful life. However, yep. they define that. I love that. And as much as we need to read our fundraising books and whatnot as a nonprofit leader, I'm glad you're lifting up. There's real value in reading in other areas like that. Uh, Rhett, fantastic. Lots of things we'll put in the show notes and links to books and resources you've lifted up. And of course, is there anything in particular you'd like folks to, if they want to check out you and the Duke Endowment, uh, I assume the website, or is there anything else you might want to lift up? Uh, just the website is probably the easiest. We are we have gone through a, a process of clarifying our strategy. So we're trying to get a lot more clear about what it is we're trying to accomplish, a lot of what I've talked about today. And uh, so we are revamping our website and hopefully we'll have that out by the uh, fall, but it'll be oriented around the strategies that we're trying to proliferate and utilize to achieve our ends. Fantastic. Well, Rhett, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you, Pat. What a gift you are to all of us. Thank you for the work you do. And thanks to all the people and nonprofits who every day get up and try to help make it a better world. So I'm grateful for that. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rhett as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas that can enhance your organization's strategy, in particular, as you think about the relationship with some of your key funders. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Rhett and several of the great resources he mentioned, including the MDC, the Center for Effective Philanthropy, and Project Evident as well as Rhett's encouragement to read more biographies and lift from them the leadership lessons inherent, particularly one like Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant. As always, please consider sharing this episode with somebody else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features just like this one that we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all that you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.